It's good news that we get to look at God's word together now. As we just sang a second ago, weak made strong through the Savior's love. This is how he does it. This is how he makes weak people strong is through feeding us with the truth and the good news of his word. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. If you want to use the blue Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 1117. Second Peter chapter 2, or 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this morning, our, our text is all about identity, and it's funny, I, didn't, I actually didn't know what Brian was going to pray, but that actually set it up well, because um, usually when we talk about identity, we do just what Brian did, which is good and right. We talk about, who am I, or if I'm a Christian, who am I in Christ? And that's a good and helpful thing to do, but this morning, Peter wants us to ask a different question in our text. Instead of, who am I, Peter wants us to see, who are we? together. This passage is about our collective identity as the church. See, as Peter's writing to these suffering Christians, that's what this letter is, don't, don't ever lose sight of that. He's writing to these suffering Christians who are confused and discouraged by these trials that they're facing. What he wants them to know is that they're not alone in their exile. Instead, they're part of something bigger than themselves, something glorious. And that's what Peter wants to show us this morning. Who are we together? One writer called this passage the most insightful and encouraging portrayal of identity and purpose of the people of God anywhere in the New Testament. That's a big claim, right? But let's, let's look at it. To show us this picture, Peter's going to quote six times from the Old Testament. If you scan your eyes down there, see there's a lot of little footnotes. There's six times, and this, this is fitting, isn't it? Because if you remember back in chapter 1, what did he tell us in verses 10 to 12? Peter said, the prophets were serving us. 
when they wrote about the grace that was to be ours. So he says, I'm going to go back to them. These people who wrote long ago about what you get to experience as the people of God, I'm going to use them to help you understand this grace that is now yours. So now he's going to have them help us see who we are together as the church. So our, our roadmap this morning, we've got three points. You can think of it as one long sentence broken up into three phrases. So who are we? In verses 4 to 5, we are a spiritual house. A spiritual house. In verses 6 to 8, built on Jesus. Built on Jesus. In verses 9 to 10, to be God's own people. To be God's own people. So a spiritual house built on Jesus to be God's own people. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's look at this idea of a spiritual house first. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So last time, if you remember... In verses 2 to 3, Peter said that his readers, what he called us to, he said, you are to long for that pure spiritual milk of the word. They are to crave more and more of Jesus in the gospel. Why did he say, verse 3? Because they've tasted. They've tasted that the Lord is good. So he said, if you've tasted that he's good, want more, crave more. And so now in verse 4, those who are longing for him, come to him. Crave him, crave him. And as you come to him out of your craving, he's described here, the one they come to is described as a living stone. Now this is an interesting word picture because I don't know how much you know about stones and I don't claim to be a geologist, but I don't think there's much life in stones. But Peter says, this stone has life. In fact, this stone is living. Now, why would he describe Jesus as a living stone? Because as he's already emphasized and will throughout this passage, it's because he's resurrected. This stone is alive and alive forevermore. But then notice we get this contrast about this living stone. This living stone is seen in two very different ways. On the one hand, this stone is rejected by men. Men think this stone is worthless. It's unimportant. It's weak. Those who reject him think he's simply a problem to get out of the way. So he doesn't mess up what they're trying to build. That's how men see him, it says. But how does God see this living stone? It says, in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. Do you see this contrast? Jesus is rejected by men but chosen by God. He's worthless to men, but precious to God. Now, why would this be such good news to the Christians that Peter's writing to in this letter and to you and I today? Well, it's because they too were experiencing rejection by men. They too were seen as worthless, unimportant, and weak by the society around them. They were a nuisance and a problem to be gotten out of the way so it didn't mess up the society they were trying to build. They faced rejection in a multitude of ways. And now Peter's reminding them, 
so did your Lord. Jesus knew rejection. And yet he's also reminding them that rejection wasn't the whole story, right? Because while Jesus was rejected by men, he says, no, 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 there's more. On the other side of the coin, in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. And guess what, Christian? So too are those who are united to him. See, all throughout this letter, what Peter has done, and we will do even more as we go on, is he's linking the experience of Jesus to the experiences of his people. Over and over, Peter never wants us to forget that all that we are rests on all that Jesus is. And here, in our passage, he reminds them, hey, just as Jesus was rejected, so too will you. But just as Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God, so too are those who trust in him. Friends, if you are in Jesus, no matter what rejection you might experience in this world, from family, from friends, in your workplace, in your school, whatever rejection you might experience, you can take heart because in God's sight, we are chosen and precious. In fact, this word right here, chosen, in verse 4, is the very same word Peter used to open his letter back in chapter 1, verse 1, when he addressed it to the elect exiles. Elect or chosen. Peter's saying we are chosen just as Jesus is chosen. And that's meant here to be a tremendous comfort to those rejected and suffering Christians. So I wonder this morning, is it to you? That's why Peter says it here. Again, I'm going to come back to this over and over again. He calls them chosen. He calls Jesus chosen. He's not interested in controversy. He's interested in comfort. And he writes it to them saying, oh, breathe it in. Just let it wash over you, church, that you are chosen. And it's a comfort. And so is it to you? Not only that, that's not the only way he links us with Jesus. But look at what it calls us in verse 5. Living stones. Just as Jesus, the one we come to, is a living stone, in him we too are made living stones. This shouldn't surprise us because have you noticed that we now have a living hope through the living word as we come to the living stone? Life is abounding in this passage. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus, he says, is now at work in us as well so that we too have been made alive. We've been born again. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter goes on, he says, as we come to this Jesus, this living stone, he said, as you come to him, something's happening. You see that? Something's happening. What is it? It says, as you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He says, when we come to Jesus by faith, trusting him, longing to taste more of that goodness, he says, we become a part of something bigger than us. Peter says, we're not just living stones scattered around doing our own thing. He says, no, 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 no. Instead, we're connected to other stones, fastened together and are being built up together as a house. So what I want you to hear is this. Peter's saying that coming to Jesus means coming into relationship with other Christians. It's a package deal. 
In fact, I would say to understand the church and the Christian life, you have to realize what God is up to in the world. God is not collecting rocks. God is building a house. And that makes all the difference when you understand what the Christian life is to look like. God is not collecting rocks. He's building a house. What do I mean? I mean, he's not merely collecting individual stones and then putting them up on a shelf. That's not what he's doing. Instead, he's collecting and gathering these stones and joining them together and using the stones to build a spiritual house where he himself dwells. This is the same thing Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, where he says that in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are now members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is amazing. I mean, do you, this is, I gotta be careful, this isn't in the, the notes here, like, but this just blows my mind that God would take us and make us into a dwelling place for himself. And friends, this is why church membership is so important. Church membership is how we are joined to other Christians and built up together. It's what keeps us from being isolated, scattered stones. And this matters because the picture here in our passage of a spiritual house rules out the possibility of unattached individual Christians. That idea is foreign to the New Testament. One commentator put it this way. He said, the freelance Christian who follows Jesus but is too good, too busy, or too self-sufficient for the church is a walking contradiction. Friends, your view of church membership really all comes down to your view of what God's doing in the world. Is he simply collecting rocks of which you are one, or is he building a house? Are you joined to other stones and being built up into a house? Or are you trying to follow Jesus all on your own? If you are, I invite you, give up that fight. Come, join here, join another gospel preaching church, but you need to be a member of a church for your own sake and for the sake of the house that God is building. Jesus promised us he would build a house called the church. And Peter says that as we come to Jesus, the living stone, we too are being built up into that house. And notice he goes on and says, this house is being built up to be something. To be what? To be a holy priesthood. You see that there in verse 5? And then he says, what's the purpose of our being a holy priesthood? To offer spiritual sacrifices. Okay, so what are these spiritual sacrifices? Clearly we know what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that we are to offer animals for our sins. We know that because we don't need those anymore after Jesus, the perfect lamb, offered himself as a single sacrifice for all time to take away sin. That's why Peter distinguishes and says, no, 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 I don't mean those. Like after the service, we're not going out into the parking lot and no animals will be harmed in the production of this service. Okay? 
Instead, he says, no, no, I mean spiritual sacrifices. Okay, you say, now I know one thing it's not, but I still don't know. What are you talking about? What are the spiritual sacrifices? Let me give you three categories straight from your Bible. First, these sacrifices include offering our praise to God. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him, that's through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So as God's holy priesthood, we are to offer our praise and worship to him as a sacrifice. That's number one. Second, these sacrifices also include acts of love that we do to others. See this two places in the New Testament. The first is in the very next verse in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Why? For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he says, when you do good and you share what you have, that's a good sacrifice. That's pleasing to God. Then Paul says something similar in Philippians 4.18. There he's thanking the church for the gift that they sent him. And listen to what he says. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. So these acts of love, when we do good to others and share what we have, he says those are counted as spiritual sacrifices. Finally, third one. These sacrifices, broaden it out a little bit, they include everything we do with our bodies as Christians. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, so what are these spiritual sacrifices? What do they include? Our praise of God, our acts of love, and everything about the way we live our lives. Okay, but notice that all these sacrifices are only acceptable to God one way, through Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, no matter how many kind things we do, no matter how many acts of worship you engage in, the only way those actions are pleasing to God are when we do them by faith in Jesus. Because it is only through his sacrifice on the cross that we and our sacrifices are made acceptable to God. Jesus died in our place for our sins so that together, collectively, we could be made a holy priesthood and draw near to God to offer sacrifices to him. Okay, so the first thing Peter reminds us about our identity as a church is that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house where God himself dwells, and we are a holy priesthood called to offer spiritual sacrifices of worship and love through Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the first thing we see. Then in verse 6, Peter's still using kind of this general picture of a house, of a spiritual house being built, but now he's going to introduce uh, another perspective on it. Now he's going to tell us, what is this house built upon? Look at verse 6. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here, 
Peter gives us our first of those six Old Testament quotes. This one is from Isaiah 28, 16. And in the context, Peter's not just plucking these out of thin air. He's, he's reading his Old Testament. And in the context, what God is doing is God is rebuking the religious leaders of Israel for looking to their own wisdom and their own efforts to save them from death and destruction. In the passage, they're kind of boasting, saying, we've made a covenant with death. Nothing's going to happen to us. We will be spared. They built their own refuge, their own house. But God warns them, it's not going to stand when the storms of destruction come. Their self-made house will collapse and will leave them ashamed. In contrast, he says, God is building his own house. And God's house is one that no death and no enemy can destroy. And it will be built on a chosen and precious cornerstone that he lays in Zion. So the first question we've got to ask is, well, what's a cornerstone? Good question. Cornerstone back then was the first and foundational part of the building. This stone was vitally important because the whole rest of the building depended on this stone. It would be the first stone set in place and then every other stone in the building would be lined up with it. They would plumb the building based on this stone. So wherever it was facing, every other stone had to get in line in accordance with that stone. And Peter says, Whoever trusts in this cornerstone that he's talking about here, the stone that God is going to lay in Zion, he says, they won't be put to shame. In other words, he says, when your lives are built upon this cornerstone, your hope will hold up and stand. When death, when judgment, when trials come, this house will not collapse. Those who trust in the cornerstone will be vindicated on the last day. He's saying that when Jesus comes back and when everything is revealed and all is seen to be what it really is, it doesn't matter whether you were rejected by men. And that day, the fact that you were built on this cornerstone, you will be vindicated. But that's not true for everyone we see. Because Peter uses two more Old Testament quotes to set up a contrast. He says... In verse 7, so the honor, that end times honor, when everything is made known and revealed, he says the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So what we have here, is we have two different building projects. You see that in the text? There's two different building projects going on. In verse 6, we've got God building a house upon his chosen and precious cornerstone. That's one project. But now in verse 7, it talks about these other builders, right? They're building something too. These builders are people like the religious leaders I mentioned earlier. They are trying to build their own lives their own way. And when they see God's cornerstone, when they're looking and say, what can I build my life on? They see the cornerstone. It's not that they're ignorant of it. It's not that they're not aware of it. They see it. And instead of believing in him and being built on him, they reject him. They disregard him and say, mm, nope, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm going to look for a different stone to build my life upon. These are the ones, Peter says, who do not 
believe. And for them, the cornerstone is not a firm foundation to build on. Instead, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In other words, whereas it provides a strong base and foundation to God's house, when these guys come across it, they fall over it. They stumble over it, and it says they are offended by this stone. And that word for offense here is actually the word where we get scandal from. He's saying these people who don't believe and are trying to build their own house in their own way, when they come across this cornerstone, they are scandalized. That's what, it's not just like, I don't think so. It's, I, I don't want anything to do with that stone. Are you kidding me? So the way we respond to this cornerstone we see is critically important. So before we go any further, one thing we have to know is, okay, who is this cornerstone? Well, in Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable to the chief priests and the Pharisees. So again, some religious leaders. He tells a story about a man who planted a vineyard. He plants the vineyard and then he rents it to tenants to care for his vineyard. But whenever he sends servants to collect the fruit that he should be getting from the vineyard, the tenants either beat or kill or stone every servant that he sends to them over and over again. So finally, the owner says, I'm going to send my son. We'll see if they treat him with any more respect than they did these other servants. But when the son comes, the tenants, they know, they say, hey, This son, he's the heir of all this. So let's kill him so that we can get his inheritance. So when Jesus asks the religious leaders that he's telling the story to what the owner would do when he comes after they kill his son, they answer correctly. They say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They answered the right way. They're listening, they're tracking, their reading comprehension or listening comprehension is good. Then listen to what Jesus says to them next. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, he goes on, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus is going back to the same passage. And what's he saying here? Jesus is reading this passage. He's saying, that cornerstone, that's me. I'm the cornerstone. And you are rejecting me. You are stumbling over me. And if you do, He says unequivocally, it will lead to your destruction. Peter himself later identifies Jesus as the cornerstone as well. He probably knows this. He was probably standing there when Jesus unpacked that verse. He's saying, that's me. So when Peter is preaching in Acts 4, again, guess who he's speaking to? The religious rulers of the day. He's explaining to them about this man that he'd healed. They want to know, "How, how did you do this? Who gave you the authority to heal this guy? Listen to what Peter says. In Acts 4, he says, By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is before, standing before you well. This Jesus 
is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What's Peter saying? He's saying the rejection of Jesus, he says, you want to know when it happened most fully and ultimately? It's when we crucified him. That's when this stone was rejected by men, when he was nailed to a cross. And yet, he says, this Jesus that was rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone. How did that happen? When did that happen? It's when he was raised from the dead. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God lay his stone in Zion. And now that he's the cornerstone, Peter says, there's salvation in no one else. He's the only one we can come to to be built up into God's house. What Peter wants us to see here is that Jesus is the dividing line of all humanity. And we need to be crystal clear on this, friends. There are only two possible responses to Jesus. Either we believe in him as our cornerstone, or we reject him and stumble over him to our own destruction. We're all part of one building project or the other. There's no one on the sidelines, no one who's indifferent. Either we are coming to Jesus by faith and being built up into a house for God, or we're rejecting Jesus and trying to build our own lives apart from him. There are no other options. So let me just ask a pointed question. Which is Jesus to you? Is he the cornerstone? The one that you come to and will build everything about your life upon, saying, without him underneath me, I have nothing. Or is he a stumbling block? Are you scandalized by him saying, who is this guy that has the audacity to tell me how to live my life? Says the way I live is sin? Who does he think he is? Who is Jesus to you? Peter says, for those who believe in him, who make him the cornerstone, Hear this, friends. He says, we will not be put to shame. No shame. In other words, what he's saying is, you hear this phrase tossed around a lot in different debates and controversies saying, well, at least we're going to be on the right side of history. There's only one right side of history. And those in Jesus Christ will be on it. They will not be put to shame in the last day. But for those who stumble over him, the stone they reject will one day crush them. And they will be put to everlasting shame. This is heavy stuff, I understand, but we've got to be clear on this. And notice at the end of verse 8, Peter tells us why they stumble. Why do they stumble? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We see in Peter's answer, he actually gives us two reasons why they stumble. First, they stumble because they disobey the word. The word, as we covered last time, the word is the gospel. So they reject Jesus by disobeying the gospel. Often we don't use language of obeying or disobeying the gospel, but the gospel calls us to do something. The gospel not only tells us that Jesus came, lived a perfect, sinless life in our place, and then died the death that we deserved, 
and then was raised triumphant over Satan's sin and the grave and then ascended into heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand and one day Jesus will come back again to judge the living and the dead. It tells us all those things, but it also demands that we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. It demands that we trust him. And Peter says those who stumble over Jesus disobey that command. But he wants us to see that it's not as though their disobedience somehow threatened God's plan. Because he gives us a second reason why they stumble. The second reason they stumble is because they were destined to. Now I know this is fraught with questions and I won't not even going to claim to try to unpack it exhaustively here, but we need to touch on it because it's important. Peter wants his readers and us to know that even those who reject Jesus are not somehow undermining God's purposes. He is sovereign over every detail of life and he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. When we sang earlier, he is Lord of all we mean all, because the Bible means all, even over the hard things. The Bible says this several places. Let me just give you two. Lamentations 3.38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Good and bad. In Isaiah 45.7, God himself says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God in the Bible is pictured as one who is sovereign over everything, even the most sinful act that ever took place, the killing of the Son of God. Listen to what Peter again says in Acts 2.23 Peter says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men what I want you to hear in what Peter says is both sides of the equation who's responsible for the death of Jesus we are you hear that? He says, you crucified and killed. But who's responsible for the death of Jesus also? God is. It was according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. And what, I, what we have to see is both are true. Just like in our passage in verse 8, why do they stumble? Because they disobey the word. Those who reject Jesus in the gospel are responsible for their sin because they make a real choice with real consequences to reject Christ. But why also do they stumble? Because they were destined to. Friends, both realities are in our Bibles. The question is, are they both in your theology? God is sovereign and we are responsible. One does not cancel out the other. We are not to pit them against each other as though it's a battle to the death and only one can be true. The Bible says they're both true. And we may not understand 
exactly how they work together, but we know from Scripture that they do. And God, through Peter, wanted us to know that in verse 8. He didn't have to include that. He put it there because he wanted us to know that God is sovereign even over those who reject him. Which makes it all the more stunning and staggering when he contrasts their destiny with ours in verse 9. Look what he says there. He starts out, he says, but. He's contrasting with what he just said. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you on the other hand, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's staggering when you put them side by side. Here, Peter's going back to yet another Old Testament passage to describe our identity. He's pulling this from Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. When God had gathered Israel at Mount Sinai, he's, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments, but not yet. He's just redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to his mountain. And listen to what God said to them in Exodus 19. He said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now notice again from this passage in Exodus 19, notice again that God is the one who did it. Did you hear it? I brought you to myself, God says. Just like God caused us to be born again to a living hope. God says, I did it. I brought you to myself. And now, what he speaks to Israel in Exodus 19, Peter says, that is fulfilled in the church. And notice all the things he calls us, they are collective identities. It's who we are together as the church. So who are we? We're going to go through these real quickly. Number one, we're a chosen race. There's that word chosen again. And Peter says we are a chosen race. Now the word race here, it's, 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 it's a kind of people. He's saying that the people of God are a whole new kind of humanity. They're a new creation. The race he's talking about here is not white or black or Latino or Asian. The race is Christian. And this word for race usually referred to people who share the same bloodline. They were of the same ethnicity, you might say. And Peter's making a point, as Christians, we share the same bloodline. We are all blood relatives because we all share in the blood of Christ. We are a chosen race. Second, we are a royal priesthood. Just as priests back in the day were set apart from the rest of the people to serve God, he's saying together, collectively, We've been set apart from the world around us to serve God and his purposes and to reflect his glory to the watching world. We are to represent him to the world. And he calls us a royal priesthood because we belong to the king. Third, we are a holy nation. This nation is not America. 
This nation is the church. It's a nation, in fact, made up of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And we're a nation that is to be marked, he says, by holy living. We saw earlier, we are called to be holy because our God and King is holy. And fourth, and most stunning of all, we are a people for his own possession. Friends, we belong to God. I just, I want to invite you to pause a second and don't rush past that. Let it land on you. We are his. This was the promise that was at the heart of the new covenant. God kept promising his people over and over again, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God, they will be my people. And now he's done it. He's purchased us. He's claimed us. We belong to him so that when God looks out at all the earth, remember, for all the earth is mine, when he looks out at the earth and he sees the church, he smiles and points and says, they are my treasured possession. Can you even fathom this? Not only has God made us his people, he's given us a purpose. Do you see that? What is our purpose? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our purpose is to proclaim his greatness. That's why we exist. He sovereignly called us out of the darkness of our sin into his marvelous light. And when it says he called us, this calling was no mere invitation. This was an effectual call. He created what he called for. Like when he spoke into the void and said, let there be light. And there was. That wasn't an invitation saying, if you'd like to light, go ahead and appear. It says, let there be. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, that's the same type of call he gave us. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let there be faith. And there was. Why did he do that? So that we'd proclaim his excellencies. When you realize how God has saved you, what he's done and his power at work in your life, you'll be compelled to say, I'm going to tell everybody how great you are. We'll declare how good and strong and kind he is, how gracious and loving, how just and holy and righteous, how amazing is our God. That's why we exist as his people. Peter's getting this idea straight from his Bible. Isaiah 43, where God says this, I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself. Why? That they may declare my praise. Friends, as the people of God, we exist to make known how great and how good our God is. This is done through both worship, the way we have this morning, and through evangelism. In fact, I hope you see how inextricably linked those two are. To paraphrase another pastor, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. The reason we share the gospel with others, the reason we tell them, we proclaim God's excellencies to those who don't yet know him so that one day they will join us in worshiping him. 
Now and forever, our purpose as God's people is to make much of how great our God is. And the fact that we can call him that, the fact that we can call him our God, is where Peter ends our passage in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, once we weren't even a people at all, but now wonder of wonders, we are God's people. It's meant to leave us shaking our heads saying, how, how, can, how can that be? How is it possible that we could be part of something so glorious? Doesn't God know who we are? Yes, he does. And that's why all of this is sheer mercy. Once we not received mercy, but now we have. That is the only reason we can dare lay claim to these lofty and exalted titles in verse 9. Not because of anything we deserved, not because of who we are in ourselves or anything good that we've done, not because we'd say, I'm, I'm a pretty decent person, but only because our God is merciful. By his mercy alone, he's building us up as his spiritual house. And by his mercy alone, he's made us a holy priesthood. And so because he's done that, because he's made us those things, as we sang earlier, let the church proclaim, this is our God. And because of his mercy, we are his people. Would you pray with me? God, would you grip us with just a, a marveling at what you've done to make us your own? God, I pray that your mercy would astound us. Help us to really grasp how little we deserve and yet how much we've been given in Christ. God, we are so grateful that you have made us into a people like this, that we dare call you our God and that you would call us yours, that you've given us this purpose to proclaim your excellencies, to tell anyone and everyone how great you are, how good you are, starting with what you've done in our hearts to call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. God, we praise you for your work and we pray that you would equip us to better and better proclaim you to those around us. Let us proclaim you to one another to build up this body by speaking the truth about who you are and what you've done in love and help us proclaim you to those who don't know you yet or that your mercy might extend further and we could see others gathered into this house to worship you with us. Lord, we praise you this morning as your people. And now we sing this last song as our prayer to you, asking, may the peoples praise you, God. Would you extend your mercy further and further so that others might taste and see that you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,